This is the Black Hole Podcast with host Ryan Millsap. With a vision of how real estate could turn into movies and how movies could turn into money, Millsap set out to build the state's largest film complex. After checking that box, Millsap returned to his entrepreneurial roots, where real estate ventures, entertainment opportunities, nonprofit support, and golf course business deals rule the day. What's next for Ryan Millsap? Listen up, and you'll find out. On today's podcast, I've got broadcasting, sales, negotiating, and operations guru, Coleman Breland. Here are a few headlines involving Coleman. From the LA Times 2018, the killing of Filmstruck shows that AT&T's defense of its Time Warner takeover was a lie. And here's another from Reuters 2019. U.S. fights AT&T deal by citing Time Warner's clout with cable companies. By the way, Breland saved this history-making $85 billion deal with a court appearance, much to President Trump's chagrin. And one more from Variety 2019. AT&T Time Warner trial, Department of Justice focuses on Turner's negotiation with YouTube TV. Each of these articles shows the range and the elasticity of Coleman Breland's role with one of the world's largest and most influential media companies. Now let's talk to Coleman. Today on the podcast, we have my friend Coleman Breland. Coleman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ryan. Great to see you again. Great to see you. So before uh, we started, you started to tell a story about the Department of Justice and serving as a uh, hostile witness. Give me some context. I okay, mean, that's a okay fun let's, story. let's go back in time just a little bit. When AT&T made the play to buy Time Warner back in 2016, mm-hmm. um, everyone thought, well, you know, given the fact this is vertical, you're not taking competitors out of the market, this should be pretty simple, right? Um, it was anything but simple. The Department of Justice sued to block. I think it's the first time in 40 plus years that type of merger had, had risen to that level. Um, and as luck would have it, I got selected to be the company representative for Time Warner to be in the courtroom for the entire trial. And I was figuring I would be called, right? I'd done depositions where you go and you sit in a room, you're surrounded by Department of Justice attorneys and they ask you questions for about eight hours and you think you're done. Well, as it so turned out, I found out my name was on the list as a hostile witness, which basically means that your position is the antithesis of what the Department of Justice believes is right. And their theory was really based a lot on the Turner Networks and why they didn't like the merger. And that's because AT&T had purchased DirecTV. And part of their theory was that the Turner Networks, I had the absolute best distribution team in the business. We were in the midst and just finishing up four years of double-digit rate increases for the Turner Networks. And so you can blame me if your cable bill's high. Um, But that was the job. And the team did it very well. So the Department of Justice, basically their premise was, if Turner has that kind of leverage and that kind of power with the 10 Turner networks to drive through those kind of increases, what will AT&T do with that power? And their theory was, they will refuse to do deals with other distributors, a Comcast, a Dish Network, a YouTube, someone, And when the Turner networks disappear on that platform, they will rush to DirecTV, and therefore AT&T will be able to build up the DirecTV subbase. Absolutely a terribly flawed premise. 
for many reasons, um, which we can get into those if you want to go deep. I do, actually. I um, well, the, the theory, you know, I could have given the Department of Justice like 10 names who would explain there's a better argument, perhaps. But they were really just working on, they were looking at the cable industry the way it was 15 years ago. 15 years ago, there were no streaming services. There wasn't really competition to some of the networks we had. And so, yeah, I could say these are must-have networks, which, of course, when they put you on the stand, it's fascinating. They sit you in the stand, you raise your hand, and you say, uh, basically, you know, under the pain and penalty of perjury, you raise your right hand. Pain and penalty of perjury sounds, you know, like there's a rack in a room. This could be really bad, right? There might be. No peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Nothing good happens here, right? So um, you tell the truth on the stand. But the challenge is they put, like, three big thick three ring binder notebooks in front of you of every email that has come to you in the last six, seven years. So they start, Mr. Breland, would you go to notebook three, page 42, and you're just fumbling through the networks, right? Or the notebooks, and you're trying to get the, um, you know, some sense of what they're going to throw at you. But the premise that the networks were so strong was fascinating to me because of what had taken place in the industry. So I found myself saying things like, Yes, you are correct. I have said that we have six of the top 40 cable networks share a viewing on a 365-day basis. And yes, that's nice to have. What you're missing is who says that they're going to be 40 networks when it's all said and done, right? I used an analogy um, and metaphors. I sort of live in that world. And I said, look, this is like Netflix is like Mount Vesuvius. And the cable industry is Pompeii. <laughs> and, and, and that got picked up in some places, which I really like that one, right? I like that, that one because um, I love Pompeii. And it was really true, right? But they couldn't see that because they were just dead set on it's all this power that you have in your hands. I think I was called Blackbeard, Tony Soprano, the Black Knight. Um, but the job was to go extract money, right? And that was it. And the networks were worth it. These were really good networks. Still didn't mean that you had to have them to be successful as a distributor. So, and the judge was a gentleman named um, uh, Richard J. Leon, and every day it would be like, all rise, the Honorable Richard J. Leon, and we would all stand up, and he would come in, and he was this powerful-looking figure, like he came from central casting, and we would all sit down, and we would hear the experts go back and forth and the arguments. Well, I could talk about this for three days, but I'll sum it up like this. After all these weeks, and after being on the stand, um, Closing argument day, the Department of Justice stands up and they basically put a picture of me on a six by six board with a quote from part of my testimony that we almost went dark over one penny argument over a network rate. Now, that was taken out of context because we actually gave on that penny, but a penny's a lot of money when you're talking about 90 million subscribers, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of money. So they put it up there, and they were talking about how I was using the John Nash uh, bargaining theory, which I found fascinating. If you saw Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe, that's about all I knew about John Nash. I barely made it through algebra. I struggled and got a D in calculus. So I have no idea how I was using this genius mathematician's bargaining theory. But that was theirs. I was using John Nash theory. As they're closing, Judge Leon stops the Department of Justice. And he goes, you know, I just feel like it's really like the Woody Allen movie, Annie Hall, you know? The relationship between distributors and networks, you know, it's sort of like the chicken comment. And, you know, I just think that sort of sums this up. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. But he was referring to Annie Hall. And the Department of Justice, the gentleman, who had a hard job, by the way, literally looked at him and said, well, I don't 
know that movie very well, but it's probably on Turner Classic Movies. So got an advertisement, shout out for the Department of Justice. At that time, Turner Classic Movies was, was reporting to me. So this just made me beam, of course. And just to give you context of what that means, if you didn't see it, Woody Allen in the movie says, it reminds me of that old joke. You know, a guy walks into a psychiatrist's office and says, hey, doc, my brother's crazy. He thinks he's a chicken. Then the doc says, why don't you turn him in? Then the guy says, I would, but I need the eggs. I guess that's how I feel about relationships. They're totally crazy, irrational, and absurd. But we keep going through it because we need the eggs. That's how it ended in closing arguments. And so absolutely fascinating to be there. Really, I felt like I was sitting in the middle of history. You were. I absolutely was. Mm -hmm. it's, it's funny. Um, I had friends saying, you should write a book since you saw it all. And I took copious notes because it was fascinating. Um, another friend of mine said, well, I don't know if that's a good idea. You know, you might get investigated by the SEC for every trade and audit every year unless you make the government look really good. So I decided that wasn't smart. My <laughs> daughter, of course, had a great idea, which is just go on and write it. When you're dead, we'll publish it. I love that idea. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> anyway, that's a little commentary for the Department of Justice and the, and the merger and what went on at the time. But it was absolutely fascinating to get that seat. How many years did you work in cable? <sighs> All told, right around 30. So when did you join um, Ted Turner? 94, December 28th. And where was that in his life cycle? Um, let's see, Ted, how old is Ted now? Ted's about 84 right now. I just mean like his business. Oh, his cycle. business. Like what oh, was going on in Oh, he just launched Turner Classic Movies that year. He launched Cartoon Network a couple years before that. I mean, it was a phenomenal growth curve. I'm, I'm really like the B student who just happened to show up on a on a great beach with a beat up surfboard and caught the most phenomenal wave ever, right? I mean, that's, there's a lot to timing and luck. Um, plus I have a great work ethic, but uh, the timing was fantastic. Um, I actually took a job inside of Turner that nobody wanted. What was it? It was a little division called Turner Home Satellite. And what we did there was, um, if you remember, you'd go out in the, sort of like social circle, you'd go out and you still, you still probably see some C-band, the big five, seven foot dishes. Turner Home Satellite, we basically packaged networks together like a, cable operator at the time, and we would sell them to people in C&D counties that mm. had the big dishes. It was great. I loved it. Um, because um, you would compete with your distributors. So I would do deals with Disney, ESPN, Viacom, A&E, and then they would do deals with us for our network. So I was a wholesaler and a retailer at the same time. So if you got the subscriber with the C-band dish, I got paid wholesale dollars. If I got them, I got paid retail dollars. It was a great little business. Is that still a thing, the satellite dish? Like, can um, somebody still have a big satellite, like, out of their farm? And You know, that's a good question. Um, I've seen some out there, but usually they're like kudzu little bowls that sort of take care of the kudzu. Um, you could for a while, and the reason C-band came about was because there was so much unencrypted content up there. And it was all unencrypted, so the, the, you could just have a satellite and just... You could pull all gather all you kinds. You get the Greek channel. You get back halls of sports. You get because there was no encryption at the time. Man, this uh, is back in you know in the in, in the nineties. But then the, we had to start encrypting signals, right? Because mm -hmm. it became a business. But Directv uh, launched in ninety four, edition ninety six. So I caught that wave. Right. Suddenly, here were the competitors to cable that came along, and <clears throat> I got to go to board meetings and and budget meetings, and basically it looked like a beautiful hockey chart because they were growing at rapid rates and they were picking up subscribers. At first it was a lot of new subscribers in the C&D counties where there was no cable. Yeah. Then DirecTV had Sunday Ticket and suddenly they start to just, they become a big competitor and so does Dish Network. And so I caught that wave, um, which sort of took me out of the big dish business into the small dish. And then we put distribution, any distribution out that 
under one umbrella. And that's where I ended up just sort of living in the world of distribution where um, you get to see the future. This is a question, a satellite question, which you may or may not know, but you know what Musk has done with this, um, uh, shoot, what does he call it? The, the, the satellite network that, that he put all around the world mm-hmm. that, he, that he's right now, I know he's been working with Ukraine on uh, giving them internet access from anywhere. Um, what is it about the system that he's created that's different than Dish or DirecTV? And why is it that DirecTV and Dish aren't uh, offering direct sat, uh, internet connection? Do you know why? That, I, I do. Okay. Um, let, let's back up. In terms of uh, what Musk is doing, I mean, his is uh, it's a very different formula, right? Direct and Dish, mm-hmm. basically, they bought Spectrum Space that was called full CONUS, which basically CONUS meant continental United States, which means you could basically get everywhere, right? You're a national distributor is mm-hmm. what you become. Um, the reason that, um, and they stay focused on, on video. The reason they can't compete is that the, the downstream and upstream levels just cannot compete with what cable does in terms of speed. So you could, you could download, you know, content from DirecTV, but it's very, you know, you could get it down there. The super there no slow. return path, super slow. Low latency is such a big issue in this business right now. There are many factors, and we should we can loop back to this. But it's the same thing going on right now with um, the tech companies picking up sports. You've got to have low latency, so five G matters, the speed matters, the quality matters to make all this come together. But that's why they just couldn't beat. So it was it was a one trick pony. It was a great pony for a while. Mm-hmm. I got to ride the pony. It was great mm-hmm. because the growth was fantastic. And again. They were getting to people. That it was you, solving a problem. Solving a problem, at the time, yeah. right? And Directv went high end, so they went after the big sports fans. Mm-hmm. The, the the more expensive packages, Dish Network was less expensive, more yell and sell. You had the you know the quintessential genius Charlie Ergen running that company, right? Which is a little like Ted, right? Where you you are the company, right? Mm-hmm. You have a personality that is the company. So it was fascinating to watch all this in the media industry unfold. Like I said, I got a phenomenal seat. I'm very lucky. Yeah, it's interesting to watch all the those guys age out. Yes, right, because there's there's not a lot of entrepreneurial talent in the entertainment industry right now. There, there's it's very hard to find, right? It, at at one point, you could have, you know, Ted Turner could get together with his competitors and distributors, and they can go, okay, not in an antitrust way, not in a secret oh, room way, but yeah. literally just we need to fix this stuff. How do we mm. fix this? How do we keep growing? And there was a great feeling of partnership for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have to get the deals done with the distributors who have their own cost pressures, right? These are, this is serious. These, ne- these negotiations go on for a year plus. They may finish in the last three days with no sleep and a lot of bourbon mm-hmm. when they're done. <laughs> but um, <laughs> while they're going on, they're intense because you're basically trying to predict the future, right? So, and why is that? How do you explain that well, math? Well, and, and why does it take a year? Um, because there's a dance. It, there just is, Ryan. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. First of all, they're complex. Everyone thinks you're doing a 100-plus page contract to govern in that moment, and that's not true. You're basically living in three time dimensions at once, past, present, and future. And what I mean by that is when you sit down, and you know these are, these are billion-dollar deals over the terms. These are a lot of money moving back and forth, and not just the money. It's... It's what happens to the content and how is it valued. Mm -hmm. So as time went on and competitors came in the market and technology improved and on-demand came about and TV everywhere and the streaming services, people started caring more and more about, well, what is this network? 
You know, so it, it was easy at one time. I've got a copy of the first CNN contract. It's a page and a half. You filled in, you just we would fill in the rate and the name of your cable system. It was very simple. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, they're, they're an inch thick. This is very, very complicated. But back to the past, present, future. When you sit down and you're negotiating these type of deals, you actually, you have a choice. You can have empathy for the other side, who, by the way, are under the same kind of tensions you're under. You got management sitting on top of you saying, get this. Their management's telling them to get the opposite of what mine's telling me to get. Mm-hmm. And we're both at the table. And you either have great empathy for the other side or you look around and see who's got the biggest baseball bat. Yeah. I never right. liked the baseball bat because the baseball bat moves around the table. Yeah, it's like politics. It's like politics, right? So, so, again, I had the most talented team in distribution, and I thought we did a very good job of trying to empathize and understand what they needed. The past is how you've treated them since the last contract was signed because there's a lot of trust in these contracts. When something's written at 4.10 a.m. in the morning and everyone hasn't slept for two days, I mean, I've seen someone pass out at 2.30 in the morning from lack of sleep and water. These, mm-hmm. are, these are intense negotiations. That being said, they're fantastic. You're in the Thunderdome of mm-hmm. media, mm-hmm. right? The, those of us who did it felt like we were vampires, right? We didn't need sleep. We'd live forever. We'd drink <laughs> blood. Um, and even though we were yeah, competitors, we were friends, right? I mean, we're, I don't mean competitors like the ESPNs. I'm talking about the distributors, right? We were really in the same business. How do we get our content to the subscribers? Mm-hmm. Um, but you're in the past because you have to understand how did you treat them and were, did you honor the words that were written? Mm-hmm. It's not just the contract and how an attorney may interpret it later. It's the people in that room and what did those words mean? And then you're living in the present. Let's because, stop there for a okay. second. I, I think that's actually one of the fascinating things about this moment in time is that for a long time, documenting things legally was an attempt to put uh, you know, into written form, a spirit that everybody was agreeing to. True. And then the document is the the deal, but the document still has some interpretation around the spirit that only the people that actually were doing the deal know. That's correct. Right? That's correct. And But today, those documents have been so taken over by the lawyers. Correct. They are over-lawyered many times. That That... Which means it's hard to make progress, right? And to get a deal done, right? This is diff- I've, I've done handshake deals with uh, certain elements, not for the multi-billion dollar ones, but for big, com- big pieces of it when mm. we're trying to solve something um, with the people who would approach it the way we would, which is, okay, what do you really need? How do we solve this, right? Your team, our teams are you know, battering each other. You got to step out in the hallway and go, okay, this is what I got left. Mm-hmm. We can't do any more than this. You're not going to be embarrassed if your boss calls my boss and says, is there more? This is it. You, you get to be the conquering hero. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll, we'll give you the trophy. You'll get that. Mm-hmm. And then they give us what we need. But yes, it gets harder and harder. And that's where the industry started to go, which is it's so much more the legal element of it and a lot more of the push and shove rather than how do we coexist? What are we going to do? Because without the distributors, we didn't have a business, right? That's not at, at the time there was no direct to consumer. And by the way, direct consumer isn't necessarily an easy business, right? There, mm-hmm. There's retail, there's bad debt, there's marketing, there's a lot of things to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we would sit down, we had to understand how we treated each other, and did we still have that honor? Did we honor the trust me bucket? You know, we would always say in negotiations, okay, I can't put everything in writing. There's got to be some degree of trust. I can't get the networks to do what you want me to do because they don't know yet what content they're going to buy. Yeah. Um, and then the future is really where the contract contract lives, is in the future. So did you write a really good contract? Did you craft a document that both sides can honor? And that's what made it fascinating. I, I you know, someone asked me, do you want your kids to do what you did? And I'm like, well, I, 
I don't know. You know, it's, mm. it's intense, right? You, it, I joke about it being the Thunderdome. It's intense. This mm. is um, stock price move up and down based on these kind of deals, right? Yeah. So you got to be able to handle the, the heat and the pressure that comes with that. Uh, I think the team and I actually uh, came, became quite fond of the pressure. And mm. um, we had a new chairman come in in 2013 in Turner, and I knew him well. And uh, he'd been at Time Warner. And he, his first question was, when he got there, is, I just got to know, how do you keep doing this job? This just looks like a lousy job. I mean, uh, you know, first of all, it's an invisible job, right? You don't, you've got ad week talking about ads being sold on networks. Nobody has a distribution week. Nobody wants to talk about what goes on in the dark of night. And, I, you know, I'd have people in the company going, next time you guys do a negotiation, I want to come. And I'm like, you really don't. You really don't. You're going to be under the table sucking your thumb in 20 minutes in the fetal position. This stuff is mind-numbing. <laughs> you really don't want to. Go to bed. In the morning, you'll wake up and your network will still be on the air or they'll be off the air. That's um, kind of like uh, production itself. Like People say, oh, I want to come see that movie get filmed. I'm like, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't know what really goes like, into it. It's just, like watching paint dry. Right. Just, just stay on your sofa or go to the theater and have some popcorn. You don't want to know because you've seen it up close, right? Oh, yeah. And everybody thinks it's all magic and it's all just happy stuff. It's not. This is hard business. Entertainment's a hard business. Very hard business. Well, it's, it's hard. People, don't, people underestimate how hard it is to make good content. Yes, they do. Um, they underestimate all the skills required along the way. Like you could have a bad coloring guy and the, 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 the bad coloring guy could mess up your, the, the presentation of your production. Right. Right. I mean, but then a good coloring guy might make a mediocre production feel a lot better. That's correct. Right. I mean, that's correct. But then you, you multiply that by a hundred different people and their particular skill and all the little tweaks that go into then delivering to you an experience as a consumer that feels great. That's which, it. Which ultimately, that's what you're doing. You're creating feelings. Correct. And that's what people see, which is why they think, that must be fun for the whole process. Not true. No. Let me finish this piece. I mean, the, actors, the actors are watching this stuff, and they, they're seeing movies that they had no idea even existed because they never got to see any of these things like get put together. So when they get to see the movie for the first time, they're like, oh, this works. Sometimes years later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> years yeah. later. The chairman, to finish that story. So uh, sat down with the chairman. He goes, uh, Is this you, Richard? Do, uh, no, this is um, uh, John Martin. John Martin. Uh, Phil, Phil Kent was leaving the mm-hmm. company. John Martin came in and he said, and again, I've known John for many years, but he goes, how do you keep doing these deals? This just looks miserable. And I said, no, it's actually the most fascinating seat at the table because you are in three time dimensions at once. Mm-hmm. You're actually seeing inside of this what technology is going to do in terms of delivery, what a set-top box can do, what consumers are doing. You actually, it makes you freaky, right? We're, we are, I joke about it being vampires. We all said we're going to end up in the same, the same asylum one year um, because we'll finally re, re, recalculate and uh, get together. But he said, just give me one word then. How does a team do this? And I think he was waiting for tenacity, gut, some, you know, this powerful kind of word. But I said affection. Hmm. And he said, affection. And I'm like, this team has never turned on each other. I mean, when we, when we know that if we don't get this deal done at this rate, hundreds of jobs will be lost, or we won't be able to renew this sports programming, or we won't be able to do these movies or these cartoons or whatever it is, never did the team turn on each other. And I've seen the other side of the table turn on each other. I've seen them scream at each other in front of us, in front of my team and their team, scream, belittle. We never did that. We are so tight that 20 years from now, if anybody on this team comes to me and says, I have a body in the trunk, I will help them hide it with no questions asked. I mean, that's how <laughs> tight it was. And that's, that's part mm-hmm. of it, right? And I, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, I don't want to get sidetracked here on you know, people working remote or whatever. If people work remote, I think that's great. 
we were so intense and spent so much time together. We felt like we felt like soldiers in World War II, right? Everybody knew Nazism was bad, but part of what you fought for was to keep your your colleagues and your brothers alive in battle. And who do you want in the foxhole? So it was, you know, it was fascinating to be able to have that kind of taste of intensity in the media industry. So we saw it from a different way. I think we're all very lucky who've got to see through distribution lenses. I mean, it sounds a little bit like a terrorist negotiator. Um, you know, it can be that, depending on who you're dealing with on the other side, right? We, we, were, we shot straight, right? I always find it easy to keep straight. You can't keep up. If you spin too many stories, you can't remember what you said. So we were always very upfront in the way we did it. And a lot of the people were. You had others who weren't like that at all. You had no idea. You'd have a fake negotiation where one team would do this, and then you know, the leader would come in and go, no, we're going to start over. And so you're just constantly in a swirl. And that's just, uh, that's just the beat down, you know, yeah, one distributor. The grind. One distributor who will name nameless. Uh, we go in to negotiate, and they put us in this crappy little conference room, right? And after making us wait, and you go in there, and piled up in the corner, all these plastic containers. Viacom had been in there for two weeks straight negotiating. And they left all the trash in there. So jokingly, we had to order food to come in because they keep us in there until the cafeteria would close, right? And there was nowhere to get food. You didn't have DoorDash. You think that was all on purpose? Oh, absolutely. I mean, these are just negotiating mm-hmm. tactics, right? But we're but look, we're seasoned. We can do this. Mm-hmm. But I literally took a cookie from one of the one of the bags of the food we got, and I hid it under the conference room table, like in one of the little crooks where the where the supports were. We went back four years later. That same cookie was there. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Same cookie was there. Um, so you get all these great things that happen when you get to work in the media business. Look, it is a great business, right? I've had a lot of friends go, you know, uh, we hate you because you get to work in the media business. And it is great. So even though there's a tough side to it, look, the things you get to see and you get to see your product, you know, on multiple screens and you get to think while you're driving home and you see kids playing with lightsabers in the front yard. Maybe that's because they watch Clone Wars on cartoon or the old couple walking down the sidewalk arm in arm and they're talking about their first date watching Philadelphia Story and that's on Turner Classic Movies that night. So you actually get to, you know, you were in production. You get to see th- your work and this creative juice that flows through people's lives. It's, it's a lot of fun. Okay, so you got to see the apex of cable. Right. And then now you believe that Netflix could be the Mount Suvius. Um, yeah, I think they absolutely are, but not not just not just Netflix. Now you've got you know, had Hulu at the time. You got you know Disney Plus. It launched what November of nineteen, and now they're they have more subscribers than Netflix. Um, uh, you've got Pluto TV. You got Tubi. You got you know you got Amazon Prime. You got so many things that are out there. And this is this is why just having a distribution brain is fascinating because people think content drives content. Not true. Distribution drives content. If you don't have the distribution mechanisms to get the content to the people, you can make the best things in the world. It will not matter. Yeah, you'll never. They'll never. Nobody will ever see it. Never. And so the the distribution guys get to curate everything that actually reaches the public. That's correct. And so that's the relationship with distributors. You know, it used to be easy, right? Cable operators ran wires. We made TV shows easy. Mm-hmm. Then suddenly your biggest distributors starting to buy networks and studios and teams. And suddenly you're competing with your biggest distributors. I mean, it's like, it's like Coke bottlers suddenly saying, you know, I think I'm going to make, make something called Boca-Cola. It's a lot <laughs> like yours, but it's a little different. And suddenly you're competing with your distributors. That, that makes the dynamics very different. Mm. Uh, you can still learn from each other and do a lot, but... You know, it's fascinating to me is if you look at at all the outlets that are out there now and how confusing it is from a consumer point of view. You know, do you know exactly what you're watching on what platform and at what time? And cable worked well because people would sign up and they'd keep it. Streaming services, you can 
you know, you can take your seven-day free pe- preview, whatever it happens to be, and when you're done, you're done. Or you watch a show and you binge and you're gone and you come back. And um, that being said, there is a constant in the media business that's easy to forget about, which is there's one clock, 24 hours a day. If I'm going to do something different, whether that's become a gamer, watch different sports, watch, I have to trade out something. And so there's so much competing for our eyes and our times now. And the truth is every piece of content, every distributor is in the engagement business. That's what we're in. I, I need to spend more time with my brands. I want you to say this matters to me and I'll, I'll wear your merchandise. I'll play your game. I'll watch your shows. I'll, mm-hmm. I want to integrate it a certain way. And, and I think you know, one of the things Turner, and a lot of this is Ted, going back to the roots of the company, is the, is the ability to curate. You know, Turner Classic Movies is a loop of old, beautiful films without curation, but the curation makes them incredible, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you have the, the very talented curators, Ben Mankovich and others, and Robert Osborne his day, and literally they tell the stories inside the story, and you saw it at, at Blackhall, right? There's mm-hmm. all the things that happened that nobody knows what it took to put this movie together, and why Cary Grant was talking on the phone in Arsenic and Old Lace, well, it's because it's the first time phones weren't connected to the wall, and it was a little bit of a product placement, and suddenly you're like, that's fascinating, I wanna watch that movie again. But now, I, what's fascinating is that it's hard to have a shared experience, right? Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I'd watch Mod Squad, and we'd go to school, and we'd talk about Mod Squad the night, what we saw the night before with Pete Cochran, you know, Link, and Julie Barnes, right? That was our big thing. Mm-hmm. And, and if you go back to 50, 1953, I always love this, this, this story, is that the I Love, Louis, I Love Lucy episode where she had little Ricky, 72% of the households with TV, 44 million people watched that. 44 million. 44 million people. 72% of the households with television in 1953 watched one show. Everybody watched it. I mean, oh, there were what, three shows going on the time? Right, there were yeah. right, three broadcast yeah, networks. If mm-hmm. you could get them, right? You had to have a good antenna mm-hmm. and, or, or a lot of aluminum full to pull it down. You yeah. know, the next day, Eisenhower at his inauguration got you know, like, like 14, 50 million less watching the inauguration, but they all watched it, right? And mm-hmm. so now you can watch so many things. I'm sure you tell your friends, hey, watch this. And they're mm-hmm. like, what pla- where do I find it, mm-hmm. right? That's the first thing, where do I find it? Mm-hmm. Um, what are you watching right now? Um, I'm watching basically all of Taylor Sheridan's stuff. Yeah. You know, I think oh, he's, he's really Beautiful. been on fire with um, Yellowstone and then 1883. What do you think of 1883? I liked it, you know, I mean, it got slow for me in some places yeah. and, um, and and and, but I thought the casting was outstanding. Right. Um, I I love this notion of telling the story of a family over many generations. Yes. And and telling a story of an American family that is tied to land. Yes. You know, because obviously land is was such a big deal to be able to come to the United States and have land because you couldn't find land in Europe and you couldn't be a landowner in Europe. It was all kind of held, you know, in the strong hands of a of a small group of families. And so watching the story evolve of a, of a family who gets control of a big piece of land and then tries to hold on to it for hundreds of years. Amazing. It's a great story. Yeah. You know, I've really is- enjoyed uh, 1923 too, the new with Harrison Ford. Yes. Um, I think there's been four episodes of that. Um, we actually, my, my wife and I had never watched The Sopranos. Really? I know. So you caught up now? No, we're we're (laughs) like eight episodes in to The Sopranos. So we're going to be watching The Sopranos for months. Yeah, what do you think? I I mean, you got to love it, right? I mean, this is just pure uh, storytelling. And in in an era when nobody was concerned necessarily about how you 
told the story as much as whether or not you were conveying the story in a way that was engaging. Right. So there wasn't as much commentary, whether it was philosophical, sociological. Um, you know, if you're telling a story about a bunch of Italian mobsters, then you expect everybody to be Italian mobsters. And so they're, they're, you're, you're getting a, a really pure form of storytelling in that regard, um, which is refreshing because right now we get you know, a lot of randomness in our storytelling from a cultural standpoint, um, sociological for sure. Like there's a lot of sociological interpretation going into storytelling that I hear from a lot of writers that kind of drives them nuts. Right, because they want to tell a story. If they want to tell a story about Eskimos, then they don't want uh, to have to insert a whole um, sub story about European settlers, right? They want to just tell the story about what they want to tell the story about. And so, going back to the Sopranos, you can definitely feel they they had a, you get it was an era of writing where you didn't have to concern yourself with anything other than the story you wanted to tell. Correct, which was part of the beauty of HBO. Hundred percent. I, I mean, it's amazing. Um, I have such admiration. I always called them my rich northern cousins. You know, it's just a little turn of broadcasting down here. Although we threw out a lot of cash and had beautiful networks, but they just the work they could do um, was just splendid. There was nothing quite like that. And and now Peak the streaming HBO. companies can spend the money, right? There's there's comp- competition now. But think about this, like you know, HBO at its peak. I don't know how many billion. Like in, in, in not HBO today, but HBO when it was really still that niche beautiful creator of content. I mean, they were spending singular billions. Correct. Max. Correct. Right? Correct. And they were curating just a handful of shows that were excellent. And today, you know, the production companies are spending about $120 billion a year making content. Right. All in together, that's correct. And I I think HBO was like, if I'm remembering right, maybe $18 last year. Maybe all of... Time Warner. No, that was just HBO, but I mean, HBO. Just HBO? Just HBO. Well, you, Netflix was like 18 Which you have to think, a lot yeah. has shifted, right? I mean, yeah. the, as, as Discovery's come in, and now it's, you know, Warner Discovery, the focus mm. is really back on HBO Max and how Fair. you spend it. And by the way, spends, it means that you're spending over a period of time. Yeah. Um, I'd love to know, given your, your film um, and movie success and background, mm-hmm. so what do you think about... Um, this year, the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild, the Screen Actors Guild, they're going to do a new contract with the Alliance of Motion Picture and TV Producers. Streaming residuals. Don't you think that's going to be a big point? Because now you've got all of the money's going to shift, right? Because everybody's like, this is great. There's so much business to do. So great for writers, directors, everyone, everyone. But it's a question of how does it get split up, right? It used to be easy. Here's one piece of content. It's going to go here. Then it's going to go and elaborate and it'll be pulled out later. Now the windows, the crashing of the windows is what makes distribution deals harder, more, more difficult today than they were a few years ago. Because that piece of content off, off times before it goes on any network, let's say a traditional cable network, goes off the network or comes on the network, it might have been somewhere else. How long was it there? How long is it going to stay on this network? Are there on-demand rights? Uh-huh. Um, the on-demand rights for a period of time? Are there ads in those? Where does it go afterwards? And how does content get shared across all these? That's the challenge of having a big portfolio, is how do you keep your, your brand unique, but how do you maximize your content without making it so homogenous that it loses value in the eyes of the distributors? That's uh-huh. a challenge. It's uh-huh. a big challenge today. But So what's the question? 
So the question is, with with all those guilds now looking at a new contract, mm-hmm. as you as you were running Black Hole and you saw, you know, the tensions that can exist inside the financial mm-hmm. sharing, mm-hmm. what do you think happens? How does content get valued for those who participate? The you know the biggest struggle I'd say relative to the streamers is the streamers don't segregate their revenues by asset, right? So. The, w- the way they want to segregate is they want to say, we have this bucket of assets that are programming, right? and you pay us a fee, and you get access to this whole bucket. But then when it comes to trying to account for what percentage of these customers' fees are attached to any particular program, everybody to this point is punted. Correct. And so... If you wanted to try to create a model where the writers, directors, producers, actors got to participate more in some sort of um, profit mathematical profit sharing, then the streaming platforms would have to become much more candid about all of their viewing and all of their data, and they haven't been willing to do any of that to this point because they don't want to share any of that with anybody openly. And so it would require a, a, a massive shift in the, in the business rules relative to the creators because right now they've been basically saying, we'll pay you fees and you go away. Right. We own the assets, now you go away. Go do something else. We'll overpay you. Will overpay you up front in order for you to go away and never be part of anything else after this. So it's just going to be a question of how hard those guilds are willing to fight to try to tweak the entire model into something that is close, has some closer resemblance to the old model, where the old model would be you have an asset. That's, that's one production. And when I say one production, it might be a show that went 10 seasons. But it's just an asset, you know, this production asset or this movie or whatever it is. And that production asset had a whole bunch of people attached to it basically forever. And so every time that asset made revenue, then everybody participated in some, you know, orderly contractual way. That made sense when you had an asset that was being bought and sold and negotiated all the time. Right. And there was something tied to that particular asset that made it have a particular worth. Restructuring all of the streaming to meet that model would be an earthquake. Herculean. Right. So so now you want to talk about, say, if, if, if Netflix is the Mount Vesuvius to cable then a rebellion by the creatives could be a volcanic, volcanic eruption, lava flow into the world that is uh, streaming. And that's going to, like all things, sports, contracts, it's, it's a question of how strong people feel that their position is and how, uh, and how, no, I mean, not just stubborn, but, well, the, but how the, willful they can be in a negotiation. It's exactly what you're talking about, which is um, where when you're in a negotiating table, is there enough room for everybody to have empathy and come up with a common deal that everybody can feel good about? You know, they give somewhere, they take some. this the, to get maybe what it is that they want long term is, is, 
is going to be pretty catastrophic. Agree. Agree. But they may just look at it and say, we're making so much money in upfront. Everybody's still making a lot of money upfront. They're just not getting long-term wealth opportunities by having the long residual tails that they used to have. Well, you, just money in general is always a fascinating conversation, right? So mm -hmm. the, the cable industry at one time had something called TV Everywhere. Still out there, but it was the concept of you've got a subscription and for these networks you're going to get the following on-demand rights, correct? You're going to get it for X number of days or weeks and here's what it looks like. Um, at that time, Jeff Bucus, who was the head of Time Warner and Brian Roberts, who's still there running uh, Comcast, got together and came down from on high with these principles, right? These are the TV over our principles. Let's all figure out how to do this. If the industry, the cable industry, had done a better job of embracing TV everywhere, it would have been much harder for networks to get a foothold, right? Because you would have taken your own, your own content and expanded it. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's hard to do when, when you're in a very successful business model, right? And to reinvent what it is. Again, Ted was always happy to reinvent things because... He, he was never happy, right? At the end of the day, he always, I, I got to get better. I got to get more. Mm -hmm. Talk about land, largest landholder for a long time. I think John Malone's uh, taken first place now. But it, it's it's that mindset. Gates of, is coming up on everybody, I think. Uh, is he? Yeah, he's been buying up tons of land. Well, what about you? You got land. No, I'm, I'm not, not, even, place. Come not on. even in the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you got nice land. Um, but this, the whole idea of, you know, where does the money flow? With, with TV everywhere, it was, it was a great concept, right? We're going to give you the network. We'll t pick Cartoon Network. Here's Cartoon Network. Um, and as part of the deal, you will get, X amount of hours and shows to go on your platform. Mm -hmm. Well, then that opens up another level of negotiation, which is, okay, who gets the data from that? Mm -hmm. Who sells the ad time? How mm -hmm. does the revenue flow? And so it's easy. Imagine an entire industry, like look in the sky at night with the stars. Industry's up there with so many different content holders and networks mm -hmm. and distributors. And how does, how does it flow like a, a river that comes together focused on the consumer rather than battling over how language would work in a contract, right, for... Yeah, I'd want to say to distributors, hey, can you create the technology in your set-top box which will allow people to auto-authenticate so they don't have to type in passwords? Well, the people in the room, they're not getting paid to think about that, right? they got to close this deal. So, so you had technology crashing in with consumer needs, with everything else. But if TV Everywhere had really been what it could have been, it would have been harder for Netflix. Not that they wouldn't have been wildly successful in here. I'm not saying that. But there, would have, there was an expansive model that cable could have done to keep more share longer rather than watch, you know, the sub decline that they're experiencing now. Well, anytime you have the kind of disintermediation that happened with Netflix, like showing that you could just go directly to consumers on the internet. Oh yes. Right. I mean, and the internet in general was just disintermediating of all sorts of bureaucracy and opportunities across the board, you know, which we've seen from the Uberization of everything. Right. Right. Which is all born from an, you know, internet ability to just connect people directly all right. over the world. Right, which is what they want, right? I mean, on to, you know, it used to be, you know, remote control was to punch your sibling and say, go change the channel. Right? Now, now, now you've <laughs> got so content true. flowing across streams and everything else that it can be, and it's, it's just fascinating. I'm, I'm watching the tech companies buy sports. Which yeah, is yeah, what do you, what, what's your take on all that? Well, let's see. You just had YouTube sign up $2 billion a year for NFL Sunday ticket. I think DirecTV was paying about $1.5 billion a year. So nice, nice increase there. You got Apple. And DirecTV lost that? And yes. Yeah. Well, it's hard to keep that, right? They're losing mm -hmm. subs, mm -hmm. right? And it was always, you know, I never saw their books. I didn't know. And I think it was one of the rockets that catapulted them when they launched in June of 94 and Sunday ticket being part of that as, as they grew. Um, 
but it's, it's hard. You ha- how many people are going to actually sign on for DirecTV to get a Sunday ticket? It played very well for them for a long time, but once the price gets so high, you have to walk from it. For YouTube, okay, so they, they they'll stroke that check for two billion easily, right? And then you got Apple, where well, especially you know, when you know I, the YouTube revenues may or may not be broken out. I don't, you know, I don't know if you know what those are, but when you're backed by somebody like uh, Google, right, <laughs> right, you can you you can play in the space, right? Mm-hmm. That's that. I said, look at the cash that Apple's got, right? So they can afford to you know spend uh, do a seven year deal at you know almost six hundred million dollars for Friday night baseball and just did the soccer deal that starts next month for what 10 year for like 2.5 billion a year yeah it's a lot of money here um, apple did t- t- apple, yeah, did. T- apple t- did for 2.5 billion so 10 mm-hmm. years and, and that's then you got what, an- english premier league what, what is it what's i don't know this you know i'm not i'm not sure which one it is okay. it's, it's, oh, it's mls oh it's mls it's, it's mls it's mls they did an mls deal for that much for 2.5 billion 10 wow. years and then amazon did you know thursday night football right so that's one point Two billion a year. So you've got the tech companies now who have the money and have the wherewithal to do this. Mm. Once again, let's go back to the latency thing, which uh, you know you've you've got to have, you know, the bandwidth, the speed, the five G. You've got to have everything you need to open this up. You know, there's still there's still places in the country that probably have twenty five you know megabits per second mm. for 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 internet speed. That's not very fast, people. And that's not it's not a lot of speed, but it will get there. When it gets there, then this just opens it up even more for the tech companies who are you know, vested and have the cash to come in and scoop up these sports, right? Mm-hmm. This, because sports and news are so fascinating. I, I, look, sports is one of the greatest dramas there is. I don't know if you watch the World Cup final, but that, that may have been one of the best sporting events I ever watched. Unbelievable. It's fantastic, right? And, and for those two hours, you don't know what's going to happen, right? You don't know. You know, usually in a comedy, you know, you're going to laugh in a drama, you know, either you're going to cry or somebody's going to, the hero's going to beat the villain, hopefully something happens. But you never know in sports what's going to happen. So I think the fact that they're willing to write the checks, um, and that becomes the most powerful program of all at the end of the day. Well, I mean, the thing about live sports is that they get to be live once. That's correct. That's correct, which makes it very precious. Yeah. I mean, everybody will be there. You'll find your way to the couch, uh, your neighbor's house, the bar, wherever you want to watch your stuff, your phone, you pick up whatever and you watch that. Well, and in a world where information is instant, right. Then it's basically impossible to get to record something, save it, watch it later, and not have, not know the outcome. Correct. And I think one of the as much ch- as you try to hide, like you know, I I, I had some uh, some buddies who weren't watching the uh, World Cup final, and they and they they were like, "Don't tell me, don't tell me." I'm like, "How are you? You can't even open your phone and not know this. Uh, Your neighbors are yelling. Yeah, right? they're either cheering for France or yeah, yeah. Some, somebody's cheering for somebody. <laughs> it's, um, gonna, it's gonna be impossible. So so that the the preciousness." of getting to watch the thing live where nobody knows the outcome. Right. And where nobody you don't knows. either. Correct. It's one of the most exciting things out there. And it's, uh-huh. you know, it's fascinating, popping back to Turner for a minute, I think. Um, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, Ted saw that early with he, buying, all, buying the sports teams. And, he saw this very early. He saw it early buying, you know, Hanna-Barbera Library, turning into Cartoon Network, which then you build Adult Swim inside of Cartoon Network. I mean, this is just sort of how genius works. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to get lightning in a bottle. Um, other things that I think matter, especially with sports, let's see how the tech, um, tech companies handle the curation of it. And what I mean by that is if, if you look at the inside the NBA team on TNT, mm-hmm. you know, you got Shaq, Charles, Kenny, Ernie. I mean, it's just like, it's magic, right? The, the way they can come together. And by the way, I've, I've gone to the taping of that before. <laughs> it's fascinating. That's really who they are, right? They, it's not like 
in character. That's just who they are. But Not a lot of prep needed. None. But they can take a basketball game and make it like a drama or a comedy and wrap around it, right? That's the, the curation of content is so important. And part of this is just my time at TCM, right? You, you, it's the story in the story that becomes so fascinating. So to have the shoulder programming that goes around sports is so important. I think to make it, look, first of all, gives you more programming, right? Mm-hmm. Gives you, makes it more valuable to the consumers. If there's an ad model there, you make more revenue, but you've got to find a way to tell the story about what that means, right? And the build up to that for every single time. It's, it's what makes content special. What do you see um, happening over the next five, 10 years? You see anything interesting from a trend standpoint Ooh. that's different? Um, I am personally fascinated by gaming just because uh, you can pick up any screen. I've watched my kids come up and, and be gamers. Um, I think the industry is probably close to $185 billion last year, which makes it bigger than Hollywood movies and music combined, right? Um, it won't necessarily be, you know, Tomb Raider and um, the Hedgehog, you know, games that become movies, but I think you'll see more and more, you know, especially with the trend in superheroes. You saw that Black Hole, right? There are games that come with this, but I think... The gaming, I think supplemental education inside of gaming is going to be fascinating. I personally think education needs a shot in the arm. Um, I just went down the plastic hallway of school and I memorized a lot, right? Mm. But if I had, if I had learned to, um, if I'd learned math that way, my son was playing a game once. Uh, it's Call of Duty, and I asked him. I said, "Hey, if if you got your tank to the bridge and the bridge was blown up, and you had to come up." and do a quick little math for me of how you would build a bridge, would you, would you do that? And he goes, yeah, as long as it's like a minute, yeah, I'd do that to get across a bridge. So I, I'm hoping that gaming and education come together because mm. I think you've got a generation of children who've come up mm. in gaming and media, and we can go over the pros and cons of that another time, but, but that's what they're used to, right? They're used to that, ed, that entertainment element of what they do, so I would love to see gaming and education sometimes come together, but I think gaming is going to continue to be just... Uh, a monster in terms of how it grows and what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're going to have, um, you know, you'll have more distributors come about, um, like a Pluto TV, which is, you know, just just free advertising, um, free to you, advertising supported, a fast channel. Um, you're going to have consolidation in streaming. I think you'll have that too, uh, which is sort of. What do you think that looks like though? Because all these streamers are owned, other than Netflix, I mean, almost everybody's owned by. Some huge company. Correct. That- Correct. So let's look at an, uh, You can look at an HBO and a Discovery, uh-huh. H, um, Peacock. You know, you got to get these through government approval again, right? You got those are issues there. But I think they'll continue to build the libraries. So I think sports going to become more more expensive. Just mm-hmm. I don't know how individuals are going to own teams one day. You're going to have to be mega rich to do that. Otherwise, corporations are going to own them. Sort of like Europe. Yeah. Um, I think you're going to see all those trends. Sports will continue. I think what will matter in that is how you present the game, especially with gaming and betting coming up, right? So that's going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, so it won't necessarily be, uh, I think stadiums will still matter. I still go to the movie theater. I like my popcorn. I like my Coke. I just like to sit there and, you know, laugh and have emotional reactions to the screen with everyone there. So people will still go to the stadium, but I think the production of sports will just, you know, transform itself into a different experience because you may have capabilities that you want to, take advantage of on your screens and I just want to watch the game but there will be so much there that'll come and that will make gaming again again gaming I think is just going to be be in a whole other dimension in five to ten years than we are right now everybody's been waiting for the goggles I'm not talking about virtual reality as much I'm talking about augmented reality with digital overlays which are getting easier and easier to do Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then I, so I, again, consolidation in the streaming space. Um, everybody will still be looking for who can tell the best stories. What does it look like? Um, I think news has its challenge since you have a lot of people that go to social uh, for news. Um, I'm not on any social media personally. Um, I still sometimes like to just read it. You know, I just like to, I like it come to me and I'll make my own opinions. There's something um, still wonderful about a newspaper. There really is. And my wife's like, why is this in the driveway? I'm like, I don't know because I just like the feel. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I can't tell you. Um, and then I think you'll be able to just, you know, look, I tell my kids, uh, drinking was legal at 18 and, you know, we, we got to grow up at a time when you played outside a lot and you guys got the internet. I, I, Maybe we got the best end of the deal. I'm not sure, but you... you we definitely got the best end of the we deal. We did, didn't we? You yeah. could get on the bike and go anywhere. Yeah. Um, but you could... Uh, uh, it's just a safer, different... Well, it, it was. I, you know, my, my kids were, watched that 70s show and they're like, so this was your life, right? I mean, you just went to somebody's basement and you got stoned and had sex all the time. I'm like, no, that really didn't happen quite like that. I said, the part that was like that was we did go to people's basements, right? Yeah. I'll be there at four, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you knew where to go. And I said, it was wonderful because we didn't, we were not always in touch. We, mm -hmm. we actually got to go and explore ourselves in the world. It, it was better. We'll see what happens with that. You know, it's, all kinds of things are going to come up about how much technology in your life as it does now. But Yeah, I mean, I think they're, 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 these guys definitely get, there's some social, really cool social benefits of social media of just being able to stay connected and find each other really fast and obviously cell phones. Correct. But just from a life standpoint, the being forced to slow down, you didn't realize you were being forced to slow down, but just having a slower life made you more connected to society, like real society yes. in the sense of like your neighborhood, your community, your, um, you got to know your neighbors because you were out on the street all the time. That's correct. You know? Um, and kids today, a lot of the parents just don't feel safe with them just running around, right? Those society doesn't feel as safe. Maybe, um, I don't know very many parents who just let their kids run the way we used to run. And I think that's detrimental to the development of the kids. I, I mean, do too. Think about like how independent you were at eight. I mean, much more so than eight year olds today. Uh, oh, not even huh. close. Parents can didn't you know where you were on Saturday. Can, this is what I was going to say. Can you imagine somebody today saying to their, you know, to little Johnny, all right, little Johnny, I, you're taking off. It's 9am. I know you're going to Billy Bob's house. Just make home, make sure you're home before the, right. the, the, the street lights come on. That was it. But from 9am to 8 p.m. at night or whenever the streetlights came on, they had no idea where little no Johnny idea. was. It was great. He was running around on his bike. I mean, it they were, was great. Mm -hmm. We were riding across, you know, major roads to go get soda pop or whatever. You know, just, it was a different world of beautifulness. It was. It, and then we never worried about like being safe. Never. Right. And we were fine. Yeah. And, and if, and if we ran into trouble, we'd like expect like somebody, some adult to stop and help us. Like, let's say I got a flat tire. Like, and they would. I, yeah, I could have flagged down, you know, just somebody on the road and been like, hey, I got a flat tire. Could you give us a ride? Yeah. yeah. And they'd throw the, the bike in the back yes. of the gas station. Right. It's just, it was a different time. I, I can't imagine kids getting to do those kind of things. And, the, and there's a loss of independence that I think is hurting these generations that, are, that, are, that have too much oversight. Agree. Agree. It's like a, 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 the oversight generation. Anyway, you know we're running out of time. I'm sorry, I could stay here and talk to you for hours. No, we'll do it. We'll do it again. Uh, we'll 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 come up with some other cool things to talk about. But um, you know, especially, I mean, you have so many good stories. We'll, we, let's just let's do it part two. We'll do it part two. We'll go deep in Ted stories. You know, let's see about let's when do, Ted when Ted had a signed document saying we wouldn't smoke. Oh my God! Can we just do it? Let's do a whole podcast just about Ted. 
Oh, let's do that. Okay. Well, right. uh, oh, I've got, oh, I've got, oh, we got to do I've that gotta soon. I've got to come back. I, I just thought of five stories yeah. that popped in my head that I, I haven't <laughs> told anybody that are just fantastic. Okay. Um, what is it? Oh, I, the, the producer just uh, sent me a, a note that says, where was the lion in Ted Turner's conference room from? Oh, that was the MGM, one of the MGM lines. Oh, it was actually the MGM line? It, it was, was one of those, yep. Did they, he, had, they had stuffed it. lions at MGM? When he, when he, yeah, he bought MGM, so he bought one of the lions. Uh-huh. And then he had the swords out there. We had the round table. I've got so many good Ted stories. All right, let's just, just, can just we, wait. Can we schedule we'll, we'll, this? Next time we'll start, we'll start with the, when I go to work and it's like, sign this document saying you don't smoke and you won't smoke. Yeah. All right, we'll start with that one. Perfect. Right. Thank you for being here. This right. has been great awesome. To see you. Thank All you very right. much for having me. Amazing. This has been the Black Hole Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening.